before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. The All-Star has passed. It is officially basketball season, and we are headed to the home stretch of both the college and pro hoops regular seasons. BetOnline is the number one place to stop for all the odds, totals, and player performance props. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up and get a 50% welcome bonus when you use the promo code BLEAV. B-L-E-A-V. BetOnline, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night. However and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of The Take It easy podcast live on the believe podcast network except it isn't live because it's a podcast welcome in everybody it is march 2nd i hope you all are having a fantabulous day here today episode 874 coming at you strong on the take it easy podcast We appreciate each and every one of you for stopping in. Leave a five-star review. Leave some downloads. All that good stuff. Hugely appreciated. If you're checking us out on YouTube, make sure to subscribe to that as well. The link to all of our work is in this episode description, as well as our wonderful guest for today, Razor Rosenthal. Y'all know him. It's March. We get to do March Madness talk, and I am very excited to chat with our great friend Razor again today. Uh, Check out his podcast, also Razor's Red Zone, which you heard me talk to Austin Carr, a.k.a. Mr. Cavalier, 1974 NBA All-Star, 23-year commentator for the Cavs. That episode was on Wired Up 100 and something, uh, maybe 108, I don't 100% remember, but it was a a Wired Up back there, so uh, check that out. Back deep in our archives, maybe it was 108, anyways, check that out. Um, Razor comes on today, we're also doing a short oral history today, I know we've done full podcasts that are oral histories of Florida State football, uh, the Detroit Lions, and the San Diego Chargers, we've done series where we talk about the histories of different teams, today we have the history of Texas Tech football, we'll get to that later on in the show, also that's like a C block, Razor's a B block, and for our A block, which I originally was not planning to do until it was announced that there was breaking news, the Major League Baseball lockout, which is increasingly becoming the funniest story of 2022 from all parties involved, just being a bunch of white dudes swinging their you-know-what's around and giving us incredible content from a labor strike that wasn't really as content-filled back in 2020. 2022, increasingly funny when it comes to the lockout stuff uh, than it was in 2020. We talked about back in December how there were going to be games canceled. We talked on Monday about how this was the ultimate conclusion to getting a labor deal done. 
done with a week of non-stop negotiations that would ultimately lead to a rejection of offers and bad feelings on both sides and MLB games would be canceled. And all of this was such a phenomenal result today with games getting canceled. If for nothing else more, and there's a lot of phenomenal stuff from ESPN and MLB Network cutting away from the Major League Baseball press conference, or I'm sorry, the Major League Baseball Players Association press conference immediately after Rob Manfred's statement concludes to the MLBPA showing up. It, or, uh, I'm sorry, people on the internet going crazy about Max Scherzer arriving in a Porsche, to which someone pointed out that Stephen Cohen, the owner of the New York Mets, bought a Picasso painting for $155 million in the pandemic. All of it was incredible, but if nothing else more... Actually, uh, one more thing I'll throw out here before nothing else more. One other thing is Alex Wood, the pitcher for the Giants, putting out a great point that Major League Baseball pumped to the media last night and today there's mo- there's momentum towards a deal. Now saying the player's tone has changed. If a deal isn't done today, it's our fault. This isn't a coincidence. We've had the same tone all along. We just want a fair deal and to play ball. Great points. A lot of media being controlled by Major League Baseball as I see J.P. Morosi not tweeting anything out. Mark Feinsand tweeting out the statement from Rob Manfred. Look at who's on what payroll, people. Jeff Passan's doing a great job because he has ESPN protection. Uh, Jeff Passan is being great at pointing out that the owners are the one who did this. I again point to the fact that while this is a 50-50 to tango situation, I, incredib- I increasingly lean pro-labor on pretty much all of these issues. Management does not need your support. If you buy into the propaganda, then you yourself are going to end up being pro-management because management has a lot of power and influence to create propaganda, less so than Major League Baseball, who's also creating their own level of propaganda. It just can't compete with the massive marketing arms of the Major League Baseball owners when they have an entire network at their disposal and ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports, in corporate partnerships with the owners using their platforms to put out pro-management propaganda. All of that to say it's important to support labor. Back to the original point before we sidetrack there. The, if nothing else, the best moment that was produced out of this was the press conference photo of Rob Manfred smiling at the podium while announcing the cancellation of games to start the season. Because, dude, even if this is funny, because it is, it's incredibly funny, I would be standing up there as well if I was Rob Manfred about how stupid all of this stuff is not because it's you know billionaires millionaires fight it's stupid because how of transparent all of it is we knew back in december this day was coming we know there's going to be another day of cancellation coming up the photo of rob manfred not even for like this was forecast years in advance when the mlb season ended in october people were like Ah, well, looks like we don't know when baseball will be back. And of course it wasn't going to be back because the owners were willing to cancel games and players were willing to cancel games. We'll get to that in a second. Before we talk about that, Rob Manfred photo is incredible. Rob Manfred is staring directly into the cameras. Big ol' smile across his face. And what should be photoshopped in there 
is the photo of Mr. Met giving the middle finger that I love so much of the dumpster hierarchy of the New York Mets. By the way, if you want to hear some really crappy podcasts, find our podcast on Believe. Go to the first episode that exists. It's really, really bad, but it's a dumpster hierarchy podcast of the New York Mets. Anyways, sidetrack there. The, the photo of Mr. Met giving the middle finger to a fan, which is one of the greatest photos that has ever existed in the history of sports. That photo should have been Rob Manfred after that press conference is just giving everyone the middle finger and staring directly into the eyes of the media and the fans and the people assembled there and just giving a middle finger and saying, and what? You're going to give in to the deal. We're going to come to a compromise eventually. We ain't giving you $80 million more in competitive balance taxes per team. We ain't giving you... because Well, the reason we're not giving you that is because it increased costs. The other reason that we're not going to do it... it, We're also not going to give arbitration players more money because that money is really, really good for... uh, Is really good for suppressing wages... Because the arbitration system works incredibly well for Major League Baseball. And we're not going to give in on any of your requests for rule changes because we don't want to. And we aren't getting enough in return is the realistic answer. But on a practical level, we don't want to. Just Rob Manfred doing the Mr. Met middle finger on ESPN and on MLB Network. Um, there was a great tweet that came in the aftermath from Michael Schur, who's the writer of The Good Place and Parks and Rec, who is also a huge baseball fan. That's like, even Roger Goodell, who looks like a protein shake in a suit, even Roger Goodell knows to have a stone face when delivering negative news. Rob Manfred couldn't even muster up the, this is a sad day for Major League Baseball, I say with a smile. It is incredibly, incredibly funny. Back to the point I was going to talk about before. This is a first cancellation. There are going to be more games canceled. I don't know how many more games canceled there are going to be, but it's going to be more. Because six games being canceled is more of a symbolic cancellation than it is anything else. They're not going to cancel six games, and that's going to move people one way or another. Yes, players are losing out on one-sixteenth of their contract. Yes, that is technically, uh, I'm sorry, not even one-sixteenth. One-sixteenth would be 96 games. What's six divided by 160? That would be 26. They're losing out on 4% of their contract by this cancellation. That's 4%. That's not going to be enough to move an entire union of 1200 of 12 yeah, of 1200 major league baseball players off of making that call or off of making the union protections. Like Ma- major league baseball was never going or the major league baseball players were never going to concede that they will now give in to the owners demands because they took away 4% of their contract. That's just not really much of an incentive. It, it'll move some people, but it's not enough to move 600 people to a vote that would then approve the Major League Baseball 
um, contract. For people who don't know, when a union and a <laughs> when a union and a and a management love each other very much, no, when when a union and management agree to a deal, it then has to be approved by fifty percent of the players. There's twelve hundred players represented by the MLB Players Union. There are uh, twelve hundred players. You need six hundred of them to vote in favor of the contract in order for the contract to get passed. Right now, they can't even get to a stage where a contract is being proposed to the players because the union heads have not accepted Major League Baseball's offer. But the point still, 4% of games is not enough to push an entire union over the top. Like, they were prepared for this in the first place. Hence why we said back in 2020 that we were headed towards a work stoppage in 2022. We said after the World Series ended, hey, we are going towards a work stoppage. Who knows when the next baseball is going to be played? We don't. The reason I don't know how many games are going to get canceled is because in labor negotiations, owners have a set number of games they'd be willing to cancel. Players have a set number of games they'd be willing to cancel before 50% of people would jump the gun or jump the line and say, I need to vote in favor of whatever contract is being proposed. So we don't know how much 50% of the Major League Baseball players value missing games how many games they'd be willing to miss what essentially what it is on a practical level is what is the 50th percent person who is person 601's willingness of games to miss say that number one on the furthest end of the spectrum is i'm willing to sit out an entire season which by the way is the statement that major league baseball players association made in their post uh post-negotiation press conference before they all left Florida. They said we'd be willing to our players would be willing to sit out an entire season if it meant getting a correct labor contract. That is not the truth. That's definitely not the truth because it's a spectrum of people. Let's say one t- number one is saying we will sit out an entire season. We will sit out three seasons if it means getting a correct contract. And then say player 1200 is I would vote for any contract right now, no matter what the MLB is proposing, no matter how much we're getting a bad deal or a good deal or whatever it is, I will say yes for any deal because I want to go make money. So say 1200 is I will sign anything, one is I'll sit out three years. Whatever person 601's value is, if we lined up every single Major League Baseball player and said, How many people will be willing to miss? How many games would you be willing to miss? If you asked all 1,200 players, how many games would you be willing to miss? And then lined them up 1 to to 1,200. 1 being most amount of games, 1,200 being fewest amount of games. What is person 601's number? Because 601's number, theoretically, is when... The, the, uh, the work stoppage will end unless the Major League Baseball owners concede. This is assuming that the work stoppage continues and that negotiations don't get any closer to a compromise. If that is enough to ruin a season, it is believed that the owners will end up folding and coming to a compromise in favor of the players. Might be the case, might not be the case. I don't understand labor politics or the state of the Major League Baseball negotiations enough to know the exact answer on that, but it would suggest that more likely than not, owners would begin to concede 
because you'd be losing significant amounts of revenue, and then they would have to be taking out loans on, say, paying rent at their stadiums in some of these cases. So, or paying salaries of your employees and things of those sorts, like they had to do during the pandemic when all these teams took on debt because they had to have a work stoppage for four months during the pandemic. You'll see some of those same things happening again in baseball for a second time in three years. Theoretically, person 601 will be the tipping point on when they will move off of this. I can say with certainty, person 601 is not going to be moved by a four-game cancellation. Because if they were going to be moved by a four-game cancellation, then they would have just taken the contract that was already proposed. I would venture to say, with no information about this, Maybe it's two months, maybe it's three months, maybe it's four months. I have no idea. That would be my guess, but I have no idea what person 601 out of the 1,200 Major League Baseball players value. But we'll find out with time, or the players and the owners will come to a compromise because owners have a set number of games also that they'd be willing to to hold out on. And if I think it's 24 of the owners could approve a contract, maybe it's 50%. So maybe the the set the 16th controlling partner owner cuz again there's 30 owners. You ask owners how many games they'd be willing to give up before they would vote in favor of a of the most pro union contract. Then you would probably have the 16th owner slightly higher than the 601st player, which ultimately when push comes to shove leans leverage towards the owners. But again, there is no way to know exactly how much owners are going to, how much owners value missing games and how much players are, or how much owners are willing to absorb losses by missing games and how much players are willing to avoid making money by losing games. There is no perfect answer here, although it seems pretty clear the answer is not a full season. And the answer is also not a month. A month of the season getting canceled is not going to be person 601. I can't tell you exactly what that person's number is that would ultimately lead the union to to fold. And I can't tell you what the 16th owner is likely to value missing games at. Although I would probably guess that between the player and owner group, it's more than a month, but it's less than a full season. It's somewhere in the middle. So if a baseball season is seven months, or say you need, I don't know, five months before the season would get canceled. So say it's between one and five months, because five months would be a season getting canceled. You miss games in uh, April, May, June, July, August. You probably can't have a playoffs. Maybe you do, and maybe you just have a giant tournament and try and collect the television money. Altogether, it's probably somewhere between one month and one year. I just don't know where it is in between one month and one year. Maybe it's two months. Maybe it's three months. But whenever the reason there's a work stoppage is because more than 50% of the owners don't want to take the deal the players are proposing. More than 50% of the players don't want to take the deal the owners are proposing. And you're in a place where they don't want to come to a compromise even though a compromise would benefit all parties. 
the reason this is the case is because labors and unions both have an incentive, or I'm sorry, labor unions and management both have an incentive to lie to each other about how much they value certain things at, and so it distrusts Sow's un- unwillingness to compromise. It's totally normal. It would benefit both parties to trust each other. This is a classic prisoner's dilemma where if you trust the other person and the other person rats you out, then all of a sudden you've gotten a bad deal. It would be good to compromise, but in this case, there's distrust on both sides. It's no one's fault in this case. It's just a classic psychology situation. And by the way, a battle between management and labor across really the last 50 to 60 years. Uh, Really, you could go back hundreds, hundreds of 20 years uh, of American history since the creation of unions as a concept in the 1880s and popularization during the Great Depression. You could go back hundreds of years and talk about people having the same issues and reasons to distrust management all the way down the line to Karl Marx's writings. You could go all the way down the line there to hundreds of years of labor versus union history, or sorry, labor versus management history to explain why it is that there's distrust between management and labor as a broad concept, and more specifically between Major League Baseball and the Players Association. So when will owner number 16 or when will player number 601 decide that they are willing to accept the deal that is being proposed by the other side? We don't know. But the reason we knew all the way through that there were going to be games canceled, and we told you on the December 9th or 10th podcast that we did, which is linked in the description to Monday's episode of the podcast, if you want to go back and listen to that, when we said we're going to do one Major League Baseball lockout podcast and we're not going to talk about it for three months. Well, now the three months are up. Now games are getting canceled like we knew they were going to in the first place. And more games are going to get canceled in the next two weeks. It's going to be somewhere between a month and one year. That's how many games are going to get canceled. This was just an inevitability because the two sides decided that the distrust was in such a place that they weren't going to compromise. No blame, no shame. Totally valid reasons based on hundreds of years of labor and management or labor and management history. Totally valid reasons for the distrust. It's just a distrust that exists. Why can't we all kumbaya get along? Because people in power will abuse the power and exploit their labor in a capitalistic society. All of that, and in a, and in a communist society. But that's another conversation for another day. The point still stands that somewhere between a month and somewhere between a year is where the compromise is going to come into place, where one side is going to fold over the other. I'm not sure which side is going to fold first. I would think that it's going to be labor, but it could be management. I honestly don't have a clue on that one. I just know it's going to be somewhere between a month and somewhere between a year of games that are going to get canceled. The first week got canceled. The next three weeks are going to get canceled probably sometime in the next three weeks. So with that... That is our MLB labor talk for probably the next few weeks or so, and maybe there will be another story that brings it back into the fold. But for now, let's swing it over to March Madness with our friend Razor Rosenthal of the Razor's Red Zone podcast, courtesy of Beer Life Sports. Razor's got us with March Madness talk here on March 2nd on the Take It Easy podcast. New sponsor alert, people. 
It's the good people over at Athletic Greens supporting this podcast. You can get 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens with one scoop a day of Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens has a special blend of ingredients that support your gut health, nervous system, immune system, boost your energy, as well as improving recovery times. You can reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. One scoop in a cup of water, and that's it. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D using the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, at athleticgreens.com slash By the way, the link to that is in the description to this episode. Go to athleticgreens.com slash and use our promo code at checkout. Athletic Greens, take ownership of your health. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello? Hey, Kyle, are you with me? I am. How are you doing, Razor? I'm great, man. I I am fantastic. It is March, and that is the best month of the year for sports. Absolutely. I think October would like to have a word with you. I think that is that is firmly in the conversation there, but I agree that March is uh March is one of the best months, if not the best month in the sports calendar, 100%. You have a good argument. World Series, NFL, college football, uh, a lot going on in October as well, but I'm going to go ahead and, and throw at you March because not only is it the NCAA tournament conference championships, uh, big time tennis transpires in March as well, Kyle. So we don't want to leave out tennis because you have the Miami open and the Indian Wells, Indian Wells in your backyard down in Southern California. Well, yes, of course you, the tennis person would absolutely <laughs> be <laughs> wanting to mention the Miami open and the Indian Wells I don't know if it's an open or a tournament, but uh, <laughs> yes, great tennis is something that very much captures your attention. Absolutely. And uh, mediocre college football stands up against it in October. Um, <laughs> I've got a lot of college basketball questions, but first and foremost, I saw that you tweeted out with no context. Uh, I believe something about my San Diego State Aztecs yeah, that did I not did. mention them. But it said uh, polio. I'm trying to make sure I have it exactly correct. It was uh, polium onions, yeah, which I assume yeah. is about San Diego State's point it, guard, Trey Polium. It was about Trey. You know, San Diego State really giving Wyoming a chance to come back in that game and win up three. He hit a jumper. And I kind of just, as you know, we always do, we steal words from famous broadcasters and uh, Rafferty's famous, uh, you know, famous thing, onions. And that was it. And saying that's, that, that basically means it's over. You can uh, shut the door on Wyoming. So I did play San Diego state live, Kyle. Um, that was a game I had no interest, uh, betting on in the preflop. I really wanted to read the room. I wanted to see if San Diego state can put the ball in the basket, which at times they don't do very well. Uh, they did a great job first half, not so great second half, but, they made enough stops to take care of business and, and win that game uh, when I bet them live. At the time I bet them live, it was probably about four minutes left in the first half. Uh, laying a, a number of minus 200, I felt really good about that. So um, we cashed that ticket, and it was a, a very profitable night for, for Razor Rosenthal. 
Well, glad to hear that it was a profitable night for one Razor Rosenthal on my San Diego State Aztecs. Um, This year, I've moved away from college basketball more this year than last year. I think part of it is just having less time available to watch a ton of college basketball. But the thing that is disappointing, and this might just evolve into a conversation about the San Diego sports curse again, which I've done many times here, is that the Aztecs were like a combined 70-something and nine over two seasons, and they only had one first-round loss to show for it because of the year that the tournament got postponed, or no, it got canceled because of COVID. And the Aztecs this year are not the same team, but... I'm looking at it now, and they are, according to Joe Lenardi, the last team, well, the third to last team in the tournament, but you could argue the last team in the tournament since they have to go play in the first four in Dayton. So uh, San Diego State, yay, nay, you feel good about them this year? They obviously needed this win against Wyoming since Wyoming is a tournament team this year. Well, number 22 on Ken Palm, and I value his rankings, uh, a lot. And I think it actually will, will improve after the win against Wyoming. Um, San Diego state has disappointed as a top seed in the NCAA tournament. I believe you've seen them on the two line or even the three line uh, in years past. I think last year they were on the six line, if I remember correctly and lost to Syracuse. That was painful. That was just buddy Bayheim just shot after shot. I think they went like eight minutes also in that game without scoring a basket as buddy Bayheim just hit shot after shot after shot. Yeah. So I like to see this team uh, not so much with uh, too much pressure on their back. Now you're going to see San Diego state. I think, I think in the field, probably a double digit seed, perhaps a 10 seed. So a lot less pressure on this Aztec squad. So uh, coming into this tournament, I feel just as much confidence with San Diego state uh, playing the underdog role as I, as I do as a single, you know, digit seed. So yeah, I think Kyle, you have to be a little excited for the Aztecs. They, very well can win in Vegas next week, win the conference championship. And that's probably going to put them, you know, on the the seven, eight or nine line if they win the conference championship. But, you know, I I think this team is good. They're not very deep, but they have a very good rotation. I think Bradley's probably one of the best players in the country. And I think if he gets going in the tournament, uh, this is a dangerous team. And I think so is Wyoming and, and so is Boise State. So I'm very excited for this conference championship in Vegas next week. How about Colorado State? Do they get to be in this mix of Mountain West Yeah, they West do get to be in this mix. They do. They actually took care of business against Wyoming on Saturday night. I did fail to mention that. They are the number 30 team on Ken Palm, so that means they are a team that obviously is capable of getting to round two or three. And yeah, you're right. Colorado State is in the mix. They're going to be the two or three seed in the conference championships. Probably the three seed. It looks like San Diego State you know, stumbled a little bit too much, and they probably have inherited the four seed in the conference tournament. So uh, absolutely. Colorado State deserves to be in this mix. Uh, a lot higher Ken Palm ranking than Wyoming uh, and perhaps a higher Ken Palm ranking than uh, Boise State. As I say that, that's not true. Boise State is 26 um, and it looks like Colorado State is 30. So uh, these are really tough teams. And, and for the Mountain West, I hope all four enter the field. How many Big 12 teams do you think are going to end up making the tournament this year? Because I know there are four that are pretty firm locks. Baylor, Kansas, Texas Tech, and Texas, which I have a follow-up question about Texas Tech and Texas, but how many other teams do you think end up making it? 
Yeah, I remember you asked me which team was better, I believe, two weeks ago, Texas Tech or Texas was an easy answer. It's Texas Tech. Texas is soft. We saw that last night uh, crumbling. Uh, Kyle, these are good teams, but I just don't think they have the resumes to enter the field of 68. Uh, you've mentioned the four teams that are going to play in the tournament. I, I just don't see TCU getting in. I don't see Iowa State. Just too many bad losses against each other. Iowa State's Ken Palm is really high. If there was a fifth team to get into the tournament, it would probably be Iowa State. But Iowa State is going to have to do some damage in Kansas City, perhaps win two rounds to really feel good about entering the tournament. They have two very important games coming up. Uh, home, Oklahoma State. They have to win that game. And if they win at Baylor on March 5th, which is Saturday, then you can make a compelling argument that Iowa State may not have to do too much damage in Kansas City. So the fifth team is Iowa State. You have to beat Baylor and Waco uh, to solidify your spot. But if they go one and one here, they will have to at least make the semifinals of the Big 12 championship. Okay, so they would have to get one more or two more big wins plus other things happen. All the fun stuff that happens in champ week, right? Where all of a sudden you you look at one team loses and they fall two spots. But is that enough based on their resume from the season? All the, the they'll be one of the teams that moves around in champ week, probably. Yeah, Iowa State's going to be seated five or six in Kansas City. So they're going to match up against Texas Tech or Texas in the quarterfinals. That's it. That's the game. That's the playing game for Iowa State. They have to win that game. If they don't win that game and they don't beat Baylor and Waco, uh, congratulations. You may be on the one line in the NIT. So I wanted to ask you about Texas more specifically, because we talked a bit about Texas Tech, that team this year, last time. But Texas kind of got back into the big time college basketball game. And it's not like they were really ever there. I know Kevin Durant was there for a while and or for one year and they had a couple good runs in there. But Texas, we think of like they have one of the largest athletic budgets in the country. And usually it goes towards um, football and basketball is a little bit of an afterthought. But getting Chris Beard was kind of a big deal in the college basketball world last year. And it feels like it's off to a good start, but I also remember they were a three seed last year before Shaka Smart, I guess, like saw the writing on the wall because he didn't get fired. He took a demotion to go to Marquette and Marquette, I think, is going to make the tournament possibly. But all of that was really weird. And I just since I haven't been watching in the last 11 months that closely, um, what has the situation been like for Texas? Because it was a really big deal when they made that switch last year and gave Chris Beard all that money to take him away from Texas Tech when he was desired at pretty much every single job. Well, it's it's a great hire for them. He's he's a Texas guy. Uh, Texas was preseason number five. They're good. They just are soft. You know, it's funny because Chris Beard uh, doesn't have soft teams, especially the ones that he coached in Lubbock. So um, they are so capable of making a final four run, but I just don't see it happening. They just don't play with a lot of swag. They don't play great defense. They don't play with a lot of confidence. Uh, Texas was preseason number five in the country. That's how much talent they have when those rankings uh, appeared in November. Um, I I think Texas is a a sure thing to make the tournament. They're probably going to be on the maybe the seven line, Kyle. Uh, Maybe they win that 7-10 matchup. But again, it's really all matchup based with Texas. Texas is not that long. They got a lot of good guard play. Uh, Again, capable of beating any team 
team on any given night on a neutral floor, but also capable of losing to the Murray States of the world that are going to enter the tournament, the Vermonts, uh, the teams like that can easily knock off Texas. And, and I just don't trust them. I, I almost trust VCU on a neutral if they find a way to enter the field of 68 to beat Texas. Uh, two schizophrenic, uh, they'll make the tournament. Um, again, wouldn't be surprised if we saw a round one exit or we see them in New Orleans in the final four because they do have <laughs> great guard depth and talent. So they're a classic five seed. It's a, hey, there's a good chance they if they win the first game, they could make a deep tournament run. But the first game is always super concerning because five and 12 seeds are usually about 50 percent. You know who wins the game? The Texas seeding is really is really difficult to figure out at this point because, you know, Texas can can work their way into a, a four seed if they you know can somehow emerge. Uh, to the conference championship or win the conference championship, probably sitting on a five or six line right now, but I could also see them stumbling. You know, they could stumble down to the seventh seed if they lose first round in the conference tournament to a TCU or they lose in, in their next few games coming up here. Uh, I, I believe Texas has Kansas, so that's really not going to hurt them. They play that game at Lawrence uh, this Saturday, so that won't affect seeding as if they lost the game. If they win in Lawrence, that's a game changer. Then they kind of solidified that five line and perhaps can move up. Again, I just don't trust Texas. If, if they're in the five hole, they're going to play a 12 seed. Uh, they could play, uh, you know, a team like North Texas, right? You know, Texas versus North Texas would be classic. That would be a battle for the Longhorns. They could also play a, a team like Iona. Iona is a really good team that deserves to be on that 12 or 13 line. I fear Vermont. I mentioned them and I fear South Dakota State probably more than anyone. So I just gave you some mid-majors that would really scare Texas if that was the 5-12 matchup. So, so Rick Pitino is back in the game. Rick Pitino is now staring down a deep tournament run this year. <laughs> well, they beat Alabama, I believe, this year, haven't they? Or they, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think they they had a win over Alabama, and I think they may have lost. Did they lose to Alabama last year in the tournament, but beat them in the regular season? I can't remember. But you know, Iona's okay; they're pretty good. I mean, but it just seems like there's. There's always that that's that it factor with Rick Pitino that he can find a way to to win a game in the in the, in the NCAA tournament. And again, I just I just don't trust Texas. I, I really don't. And if they were matched up against South Dakota State, uh, they should be very, very careful. Well, I remember last year, everyone was making them the trendy 15 2 upset and then ended up being Oral Roberts, who no one really knew about that well, but I, I think they got smacked by Alabama, if I remember correctly. I think it was close for like a half second and then Alabama kind of blew them out in the tournament. Yeah. But I, I know Ayana was a trendy pick last year and I didn't realize Rick Pitino was this year going to be a 12 or a 13 seed with like a more legitimate chance of pulling an upset. Yeah, Iona, Iona did beat Alabama this year when Alabama was ranked 10 in the country. And yeah, they got blown out by them in the NCAA tournament. But Iona doesn't lose to bad teams. So that's they have but they don't beat very good teams. So that's the scary part about you know, betting on a team like Iona in the NCAA tournament, they take care of business. They have one quad one win. That's it. Just one. They beat Alabama in Tuscaloosa. Everyone else they have beaten certainly is nowhere near quad one or quad two. So yeah, Iona probably make the NCAA tournament. I think the only th true threat they have in that conference championships is probably Siena. Uh, other than that, I mean, yeah, I, I would, I would go ahead and be, and be a little leery of betting uh, Iona big in the tournament. But again, uh, this is why it's March madness. It's not easy in a handicap. I've said this before in your podcast several times, 
These are not big plays for me, the NCAA tournament. Too many upsets, too many bizarre things. And but it, but that still makes it very exciting to watch as a spectator. Well, you threw out all those different names of mid-majors, and they were coming from the the quote unquote traditional conferences that we find mid-majors pulling upsets, whether it be American East Conference or uh, the one that Wofford is always in. I forgot what that one's called. Is it the SOCON, I think? Yeah, the SOCON. Uh, yep. That's right. Yeah, that that conference usually produces a strong team. The MAAC, which I know is the the Iona conference, is usually one that they kind of get the 15 or 16 every year. Like it's one of the it's like the 28th or 29th out of the 32 conferences. So the fact Iona's there when, you know, most of the teams in that conference aren't regarded as the same level as D1 teams is still pretty remarkable that they're able to build such a resume because it usually comes from being dominant against teams in that um, in that conference that maybe aren't on the same level as them for whatever reasons Rick Pitino has been able to recruit people and develop people at Iona because he's a Hall of Fame coach. Yeah, and, and, and Iona has a, a lot of, uh, excuse me, they have a great non-conference schedule compared to the rest of their conference that they, they, they play some tough teams. Uh, they got a W over Hofstra, a very good team for their conference. Uh, they went to Kansas, uh, lost to them by 13. They were actually in that game at some point. I believe it was shocking. It was like a two to three point game with maybe eight minutes to go. So uh, they're not afraid of playing good teams, but they haven't really beaten any for the exception of Alabama. And this is a pretty weak conference. I mean, this is a conference where Iona really hasn't stumbled. They went back-to-back losses at Niagara, at Siena, but ever since those back-to-back losses, they've, they've hit five in a row. Well, all right. We will keep that in mind with Ayana basketball. I didn't think we'd have five minutes on Ayana in us today, but Rick Pitino is Rick Pitino is such a weird case study because he's a Hall of Fame coach who's basically been exiled from the sport. And this is his step back in is that little old Ayana who I think has made like five straight March Madnesses or something like that. Um, I wanted to wait until you came on the show to talk about blood week last week, because if all six teams lose at the top, does that mean all six teams get to keep their position or does it mean that number seven is allowed to move up? Cause I imagine if this happened in college football, which I think there was like one blood weekend, like back in 2014, when something like this happened, where like Florida state lost and Oregon lost and like, like six of the top eight teams in the country lost. And like, no one knew what to do after the fact, but like I think of if that happened in college football, everything would be thrown into chaos. And in college basketball, when the games aren't as important week to week, like one game doesn't change the landscape that much. It seems like the same four teams are still on the one line and the teams that lost, you know, five and six are still kind of hanging around as two seeds or maybe three seeds. So what do you make of Blood Weekend last week where the top six teams in the country all lose on the same day? Well, I think you mentioned it. It's just not as important. The significance of the loss in college basketball when you're playing two to three games per week just doesn't hold the same water um, as if you were to lose in, in November in football, right? right? So, uh, And they all lost to really good teams, all teams in Ken Palm's top 25. These are not big surprises. As a matter of fact, I think – Three out of the six teams that lost were underdogs. So Gonzaga, Arizona, 
Um, help me out here, Kyle. They were favorites. Kentucky was not a favorite. Kansas was not a favorite. Auburn was not a favorite. So, and Purdue was okay. So Purdue was a very short favorite. So I was right. Three favorites, pretty short for the exception of Gonzaga, who, who was laying 10 points, Gonzaga, Purdue and Arizona. Arizona was favored by eight and a half in Boulder. So you had three favorites, three underdogs, even though they're all in the top six. So I don't think this is a a fair sample size to be concerned. I think Gonzaga showed that they're human in their own conference. And they also showed me that I just don't have a ton of faith for them to win the national championship. And I do not like their odds right now, plus 350. You just got to give me a lot more value than that to purchase Gonzaga right now. Well, if Gonzaga is not wetting your whistle right now, who would you? That's a weird phrase. I never realized. I wonder where the origin from that comes from. If Gonzaga is not wetting your whistle, then who would you argue is the best team in college basketball or maybe a best value play as you go towards the championship? I love Kentucky as the best value play. Ken Palm, number two in the country. They're not even healthy and they're winning and covering games. That game against Arkansas uh, in the betting world, Kyle, they won the game. They won the game on a miracle three, a ridiculous backdoor cover. If you had Arkansas minus two and a half, uh, you may have jumped a bridge and we hope you survive that fall. But uh, Kentucky, I, I think Kentucky's really dangerous. And, and once they get healthy, if they get healthy, um, they will be a force to be wrecking with because they're young and they're super talented. I like Kentucky right now. You can purchase them at plus 800. For those that do not know what that means, you can lay $100 and your return is $800 on the Kentucky Wildcats to win the national championship. I almost say the same thing for Duke, the number five team in the nation on Ken Palm. It's really a team that is so talented, uh, tremendous depth, but they somehow stumble in weird situations as they did at home against Miami and Virginia and on the road against Ohio State. Uh, And also to mention losing to a pretty bad Florida State team, but at the time Florida State was at full strength. Um, I I think Duke and Kentucky, you talk about blue bloods right there. I I think the Christian Leitner game, uh, Duke UK, that's what I think about when you you, you say those two teams. Those are the two teams that I love the most as far as value goes uh, to win the title. Duke probably selling a little bit higher, depends on where you shop at plus 1,000. Again, you lay $100 right now, today. Uh, Today is March 1. I guess your podcast will be presented on March 2. Uh, That's the current number, plus 1,000 in most shops. All right. That is uh, that is the move. And obviously you're going to get higher, higher odds on March Madness because March Madness is incredibly difficult to project sometimes. Usually you get the best teams at the end, but it's sometimes hard to do the analysis on March Madness. I see Houston's also moving up into the top 10 again, which is incredible that Houston has built this dynamic powerhouse out of the American Athletic Conference uh, with Calvin Sampson, who's a similar situation to Patino, like exiled from the sport and has now built a powerhouse back up in his first trip back. It, it took eight years, but in his first trip back, he's now built a powerhouse from a tiny conference, which is pretty incredible. I'm just going through the top 10 here. Uh, Tennessee, top 10 in Ken Palm. Do you agree? Do you disagree? What do you think of Tennessee, who broke my heart many years ago with Admiral Schofield and Grant Williams because I picked them to win the championship and they lost pretty early in the tournament. 
Yeah, I mean, Tennessee is a very hot team. Uh, since January 29th, they only have two losses, that to Texas and to Arkansas a few weeks ago. I, I think Tennessee is really good. Uh, do I trust them to win the national title? Probably not. Obviously, they, they, they have been really good teams. They beat up on Kentucky and Knoxville by 13. Uh, they won at home uh, this weekend against Auburn. Auburn is slipping a little bit. Their stock is certainly slipping. What we're seeing with Auburn is they have really very limited depth. I always talk about depth. I love depth. I love eight and a half players. If you can rotate that amount, you're in good shape to make a run at the tournament. Auburn rotates about seven, maybe eight at times. So they're they're behind the eight ball. Uh, Tennessee, uh, yeah, I mean, a little fugazi to me. What I mean by that, it's fake. If you haven't seen Donnie Brasco, that's a plug for Donnie Brasco. Great movie back in the 90s. But um, I, I, I <laughs> so many that, 90s references today. <laughs> it is. It's an. Hey, I'm a '90s guy, born in 1980, so I grew up in the '90s. I, I, I think. I, I think Tennessee is a team that uh, is a little more trustworthy than Texas, even though they lost to Texas in Austin by one. I, I like this team. I, I do think they deserve to be on the three line, and I think they can make a run. Um, and I think they are deserving as of right now uh, in their Ken Palm ranking of number ten. So I'm looking through right now and, and I saw UConn is on the four line right now, according to Ken Palm. And I think, or according to Lenardi and Ken Palm has them, I think top 20 right now. Yeah. 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 They, they have UConn sitting at number 20 right now. Um, is UConn still a program that is like a destination job or is uh, it's Danny Hurley's there, right? Dan Hurley's yeah, at UConn. Danny Hurley's there. And it's, it, it's, it's a destination job. If, if you can become relevant against, I, I think the passion in stores, Connecticut is as high as anywhere else in the big East uh, Connecticut, you know, with a very poor performance in the national uh, tournament last year, getting blown out by Maryland. I almost give these teams a pass last year with the bizarre situation where everybody's playing empty arenas in the city of Indianapolis, whether you're playing, a, a, you know, at Butler or IUPUI, just, just a really weird setting watching that tournament last year. Uh, the UConn is deserving of a four or five seed because they play a very difficult schedule. Uh, not only do they play a very good Big East schedule, but, you know, they beat Auburn. They played Michigan State, lost to Michigan State by four. Uh, they've played a lot of tournament teams. They played some good teams from the A-10. They played St. Bonnie's. They played VCU. Uh, they traveled to a very solid but not tournament team, Big 12 team in West Virginia on the road, lost by a bucket. Um, I like this team. I like UConn. I, I think winners of five in a row. Now they they line themselves up with a chance to beat Creighton and DePaul and secure that fourth seed. Very dangerous team. It really just depends on who they match up with. So the matchup nightmares for uh, Connecticut would be teams that have bigs, like really good bigs. And unfortunately, if they're on the same line as Gonzaga, who has the best front court in the country, like I would be nightmare, so would Arizona. So if you're um, a UConn fan and they're a four seed, you want a team that doesn't present too much size and would be Baylor in Kansas. It does. It doesn't become Champ Week officially until. Oh. Oh, I am still here. Uh, it doesn't become champ week officially until St. Bonaventure is on the bubble because every single year, the Bonnies for some reason, find themselves on the bubble. It's one of my favorite things to see every year. They're, they're always in the mix in the A-10. We always have to argue how many A-10 teams are going to make the tournament. And it feels like St. Bonaventure is always the third team. You're going to get your VCU. You're going to get maybe like a, a Dayton being number one in the country, like I'm still here. Uh, let's see. 
All right. Uh, did you catch any of that or did I, I did? I did. You were giving me the, the, the St. Bonnie's uh, resume and discussing their past. And I'll tell you, Kyle, they are always a fascinating team on the bubble. The Bonnie's uh, were dead to rights back in January, but they are winners of eight in a row. So the Bonnie's have two massive games coming up. One of them tonight at VCU home Richmond on Friday. If they win both of those games, I think they're in. I think they move from last four out to last four in, and then they're going to have to perform in the conference championship. St. Bonnie's is a really good, dangerous A-10 team. I really think they're the second best team in the conference behind Davidson. I really hope the Bonnie's uh, find their way in the tournament. I think VCU is good as well, but hey, this is it. Tonight's the night. VCU, Bonnie's winner, emerges, I think, into that last four in, last four out bubble. Uh, the loser um, could be packing their bags for a home game in the NIT. Are you betting this game? Is this a stay away game? What stay does Razor game. Rosenthal see? A total stay away game. You know, the line is probably short. I haven't even looked at that line. We can pull that line up uh, if you desire, Kyle. Um, it, th- those games are stayaways for me. And of course, but you can read the room and bet it live. So if I have a chance to see one team really pulling away, Maybe I do bet it live, but as of right now on the pre-flop, uh, I am staying away from this game. It's it's just a huge game. It's a game that um, really hard, in my opinion, to handicap. Of course, the game is in Richmond, so VCU will have the home court advantage, and I hope I have the right date. I think the game is tonight. I did, I don't see it on the board, but I was it is pretty- correct. Yes, it is Tuesday, March first okay, at eight thirty okay. Eastern. Uh, I, according to our friends at bet online, it is VCU minus one eighty and minus four points against St. Bonaventure. Yeah. So minus one eighty is a heavy price tag. I think to pay for a really good team, um, in St. Bonnie's at VCU, that price is a little bit, a little bit rich for me. I would love to see it maybe at minus one forty. So it's a stay away. Um, I think you can just kind of watch that as a fan of basketball to see who emerges right without betting it but you know if, if, if you see St. Bonnie's kind of taking control of the game earlier and you get a, a good price tag on a live bet money line I say dive in that's what I did with your San Diego State Aztecs yesterday I haven't seen San Diego State score that much in the first half I don't think all season and I said if they can somehow keep this up at just even at 50% of the level that they're playing right now in the second half as they did in the first uh, they're going to get enough stops and they did so read the room in this vcu game of course people won't be able to do that if they listen to this podcast 24 hours from now but uh that's my advice for these big matchups because there will be plenty of saint bonnie's vcu like games coming up here this weekend i just don't like them on the pre-flop yes again this is the san diego state team that i believe scored 37 points in a basketball game and still won. I think this was not within a few years. Um, This is a San Diego State team that is kind of like Virginia, where they're just going to play aggressive defense and never score points, just like San Diego State football. San Diego State as an athletic department is just against scoring. That is just kind of their whole game plan there. Um, I want to ask you a few bubble questions, which I know is a dangerous game to play with so much in the air still um oregon on the bubble are they 
good? Are they fading? What's the situation for Oregon? Because I assume they'll make it in the first four and still somehow make the Elite Eight because Oregon always finds its way to the Elite Eight somehow. Oregon really hurt their chances to solidify a spot uh, losing the USC a couple nights ago. That was a heartbreaker in Eugene. I felt like if they would have beat USC, we would see them in the uh, first four, maybe first four buys perhaps. And now they are certainly on the bubble. I don't have them in the tournament, just not enough quad one wins, Kyle. I, I really think they're behind Memphis. I think they're behind Indiana. I think they're behind the likes of Wake Forest, San Francisco. Um, just don't see them getting in the tournament unless they can make a run in Vegas next week. How about your buddies in Miami? I have the Hurricanes. In. I mean, I, I think Miami is a good basketball team. I think they've solidified themselves as the number three team, perhaps the number two team in the conference. I, I just don't see how you keep Miami out of this tournament, but uh, I've seen stranger things, right? Because, you know, Miami did beat Duke at Duke. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't follow these guys religiously as far as um, Jerry Palm and, and Joe Lenardi, but I'm going to throw out a number for Miami. I mean, they, they should be on the nine or 10 line, in my opinion. According to Joe Lenardi, they're currently on the 10 line. So that is a a, a good shout by you. Good shout on your part. Uh, We mentioned TCU earlier. I actually just saw them number nine following up. So, you know, you had them kind of hanging out on the outside possibly, but Lenardi has them firmly in the tournament, which is a little surprising. surprising to me. I just, I don't get it. I mean, TCU does have some good quad one wins. I'll give them that, but um if they're a seated nine, I would be shocked. I, I just, I just don't have them. And that's of course, uh, Joe Lenardi uh, has a lot more experience than I do with bracketology and probably makes a lot more money doing this. So uh, I think you have to probably assume they're in, if they're a nine seed right now, I just don't, I'm not in love with their resume, but yeah, there have been some good wins for Texas tech, especially at home. They have taken care of business. They have been some good teams. They have stumbled at times, but uh, yeah, TCU is playing okay basketball. I mean, I, I just I don't know, Kyle. I don't I don't have them in. I mean, they, they they're a team that they go win, they lose, they win, they lose. Uh, got blown out by Texas. They did beat the Red Raiders, and I think that's what probably really gave Joe Lenardi uh, the opportunity to say, hey, this team has uh, have some good quad one wins. They did beat LSU. They did beat Iowa State. Um, they, that's really all that really stands out to me. I mean, they beat Georgetown. You and I can go on the court perhaps and beat Georgetown with their five. Uh, Texas A&M <laughs> is not very good this year. We talked about Utah a few weeks ago, how awful they are. Uh, Texas, I just don't understand that logic from Lenardi, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they, 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 they're just not a good team to me. I, I feel like they are not deserving as of a nine seed, maybe, uh, maybe on the bubble, but I'm shocked by that. I had no idea that he has them on the nine line. Maybe this could lead into a larger Big East conversation somehow, but I got I love this story that happened to Georgetown over the weekend. That <laughs> Georgetown, who for people who don't know, they are, I believe, 0-16 in conference play right now. Uh, Georgetown gave Patrick Ewing a contract extension while being 0-15 at the time, which is one of the greatest stories that I've ever seen because of course, Patrick Ewing has great job security at Georgetown. They, I think, were going to make the tournament the year that the tournament got canceled. And they've been a fine program, but it was incredibly funny when I saw the internet joking about 
him getting a contract extension while actively being 0-15 in conference play because I've never seen a team 0-15 in conference play. I've never seen that where a team doesn't get a single win in the weird randomness of college basketball. Yeah, it's bizarre because Georgetown, you know, they play hard. And, you know, what people don't realize is that pretty much every first half, especially uh, the first seven or eight games in the conference, they were in it. I think at times they led at times down by a bucket against really good teams. Then they would just fall apart, lose by 20, lose by 15. And I just don't understand that. Um, What happened, though, this weekend or Sunday, I should say, against UConn, was one of the worst bad beats in the history of college basketball. Uh, If you had UConn minus 10, Kyle, I think they just basically allowed Georgetown to score 11 unanswered to end the game. They led by 20, and I think that UConn beat them by 9 or 10. All I know is that UConn did not cover the number, and Georgetown backers, which probably weren't too many, cashed a ticket. I couldn't believe that when I saw that uh, UConn up by 20 or 21 with about five or six minutes to go. And I don't think they put another bucket in the basket. So G-Town gets the win, uh, I think, at plus 10. I just realized Butler's bad this year. That kind of stinks. I'm, I'm used to Butler always being around as a seven seed in March Madness, but it looks like Butler's not good this year. Uh, that that made me a little bit sad. Uh, DePaul's always bad at basketball, but somehow they're five games better than Georgetown. Uh, Big East is... Big East has a lot of bubble teams, don't they, this year? That kind of seems to be the case because I'm looking at the standings and it looks like a whole lot of teams in the middle and then... You know, Providence is really good. Villanova is really good. UConn's really good. And there's not a whole lot else in the conference, it looks like. Yeah, I think that the Big East is fun. I think they have three very solid teams. Providence, who, you know, is extremely lucky to win these games. Uh, UConn, who we've already mentioned. And, of course, Villanova. You know, Villanova to me is a little fugazi. I think they win tonight against Providence just because Providence is celebrating their conference championship. I think I think Providence is going to lay an egg tonight. I really do. I like Villanova <laughs> on the money line. You're going to have to pair them up with a couple other teams because the price is so high. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not really scared of the likes of Xavier and Creighton. These are decent basketball teams, but I just don't see how these two teams can make any impact in the tournament. I think the only team that could really make an impact in this tournament is not Providence. I think it's UConn. I, I just like I like UConn's guard play better than than Providence. I just think Providence has uh, borrowed a lot of free money and free time. I just I just I think they're good, but to be on the three or four line is going to put a lot of pressure on this on this Providence team. Come uh, for reference, Providence is twenty four and three this year, and they have the same. Uh, they're right next to Ken Palm with Michigan, who is fifteen and twelve. Um, that is again like they play in a major conference too. I can't believe I was like, all right, where's Providence on here? I'm like, not top twenty. Not top 25, not top 30, all the way down at 39 on Ken Palm, which is incredible considering that they only have three losses on the season, which is kind of ridiculous. But everyone apparently knows that they're just kind of lucky to be there at this point, which is funny to me. Nothing on Villanova. Is Villanova not one of the best 
teams this year. It's not one of the best Villanova teams of all time, I assume, because they won two championships in the last seven years. No, so. it's not. They don't have the bigs that they've had in the past, and they don't have the depth that they've had in the past. But Villanova is going to be tricky. You know, I'm going to go ahead and throw out Villanova as a maybe a five seed. I, I guess you can take a look at what uh, Lenardi has the the Villanova Wildcats at right now. Um, you know, I, I look at their Ken Palm. I see a team that's ranked top 15 in the country. Uh, losses to Connecticut, losses to Marquette. They take care of the bad teams. Going back to Providence, I mean, Providence beats all the bad teams by a bucket, you know, and I think I think that's why uh, their Ken Palm is so low and deservingly low. So, um, no, I'm not I'm not uh, sold completely on Villanova. Um, I mean, look, I, I'm looking at Providence real quick. Sorry to go back to them, but Providence obviously took care of business against Creighton. That was a nice win for them to win by 21. The Xavier game, they had no business winning that. They lost to Villanova at home, Butler by one, DePaul by three. They blew out Georgetown, but that first half was close. Uh, barely beat St. John's and Marquette. I think Marquette's in the tournament too. I- I'm not sure where Lenardi has them. I'm going to go ahead and, and assume that they're first four in, first four out. Uh, I think Marquette's a dangerous team too. I mean, I, when I say dangerous, I mean a team that if they're seeded 11, they probably can go ahead and meet a six seed. But none of these big East teams uh, likely are going to make a huge impact on this tournament. Joe Lenardi currently has Marquette as a seven seed in March Madness. Oh, wow. So I'm way irritating to the fact that I, I really think that Marquette, surprised by Marquette as a seven seed right now on bracketology, um, I just look at them as a, as a double-digit seed, probably 10 or 11. Yeah, and that's where they have Creighton right now, and Creighton's kind of got the same type of resume from the same conference as Marquette, but they have Creighton as a uh, a last four bye right now. So I think Creighton is either a 10 or an 11 seed, according to Joe Lenardi, uh, which is not not the de facto thing, but you know gives you a, gives you an idea of where things stand right now. Um, final question, I suppose, for you here is the one that I'm probably going to hound on for the next few weeks. Does Rutgers get in? Does our magical, chaotic Rutgers team make the tournament? They deserve a chance. I mean, Rutgers still has a lot to play for. And right now, all right, let me just throw this out because I've been wrong in the last two. I, I think Rutgers is a good team. I, I really do. And, you know, if I'm Joe Lenardi or Jerry Palm, I, you know, they're not going to be 13 through 16. Obviously, those typically belong to the smaller conferences. So I have to put Rutgers as a 12 seed, whether they're uh, whether they're in or they're in Dayton or they're a 12 seed. I mean, Rutgers is good. They have some really solid wins, a win in Madison, uh, perhaps against a team that could be the number one or two seed in the tournament. So I, uh, I, I like Rutgers. I really do. I think they bring back a lot of players from last year, and I think they are deserving of a 12 seed. Rutgers is currently, according to Joe Lenardi, team 68. They are the last that, team to make the okay. tournament. And that, that, that puts them on the, does that put them on the 12 line? Is that right? I mean, there's two 12s playing each other. Uh, it has two 12s playing each other and then two okay. 11s, according yeah. to his. But it could be the, an 11, the, could be a 12. The problem with Rutgers is that they've lost three in a row, but they've lost to three, well, I would say really good teams. They lost to Michigan away, but they lost to Purdue and Wisconsin, who are two, you know, two very good teams, two teams that play tonight. What a game that's going to be. Two teams playing for the number two seed in the tournament. Um, they've beaten Illinois. They've beaten Wisconsin. They've beaten Michigan State. They've beaten Ohio State. They've beaten Iowa. Um, they're good. They're a good team. Uh, you know, so 
Yeah, I, I I like Rutgers. I mean, they 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 have they beat Purdue. They lost Purdue and beat Purdue. So um, I think Rutgers is deserving. But here is what is going to happen: uh, an away game in Bloomington. If they lose to Indiana, now they're off the bubble. Then they got to come home and beat Penn State. Then they creep back closer to the bubble. Then it's going to come down to an Indianapolis run for Rutgers. If they can win two rounds in Indianapolis, I think they're I think they're in the tournament. So with Arch Madness kicking off this week, I need to ask you, does Loyola have to win? Does Sister Jean have to win Arch Madness to get into the tournament this year? They, they absolutely do. They they have not played good basketball. I, I, I think Sister Jean, they're the number four seed in Arch Madness, or I, I think they are. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I, I really thought I saw that tournament bracket come out on Sunday night and Loyola Chicago was the number four seed. They have the most experience, but it looks like it's Northern Iowa's uh, tournament to win. Loyola Chicago is probably the favorite to win the tournament just because of the brand name. But yeah, Kyle, if they do not win this tournament, they the Mount the excuse me the Missouri Valley they're not getting two teams in this tournament. It's it's the winner takes all. Um, I, I I I really don't know who's going to win this tournament. I think you'd be crazy to bet this on the preflop today or tomorrow. You know, put your money on Loyola Chicago or Missouri State or Northern Iowa and feel really confident about your bet. I think you just kind of watch this tournament unfold, possibly some live action, but. Uh, yes, you have to win this tournament if you're loyal to secure yourself maybe a last four in spot as a 12 seed. Yes, it, it, you are correct about all of that. Loyola is the betting favorite right now. They are a four seed. They play the legendary Bradley Braves, who for people who don't remember, Bradley was like a seven seed a couple years ago in Arch Madness, and they won the whole thing, and they made the tournament, and it was really weird because Arch Madness is usually like... Arch Madness has become this weird like legend in college basketball where everyone kind of knows the names of the the conference schools a little bit and they have this tournament that's the week before all of the conference tournaments. So they get some national news or national media attention, but yeah, Arch Madness has kind of developed its own lore and Bradley took the championship a couple of years ago. And now this year Loyola needs to win from the four line to have one more sister Jean run, which, you know, we thought maybe sister Jean's one run would be, in 2017, but lo and behold, sister Jean at 102 years old might have one more run in her for Loyola, Chicago. She'll be there. She'll be there in St. Louis. I can promise you that I won't be there, but she'll be there. Yeah, of course you gotta, you gotta get it. You gotta make, at least make the championship. Cause if you make the championship, then you can play the bubble game a little bit. According to Lenardi, their team's 70 right now. So they would be the second team out as things stand, but they don't really have any teams better than them left on their schedule. So they can only suffer bad losses and not really gain any big wins. They have to win it, Kyle. I would be shocked if Loyola Chicago reached the championship game, lose the, the championship game to perhaps Drake or Missouri State and and and, and find themselves in the tournament. It's a, it's they, they got to win it. And that's the same thing for Northern Iowa as well. It's a one bid conference this year. So one bid conference out in the in the old Missouri Valley um, razor. 
Appreciate it. As always, check out Razor's Red Zone, by the way. He's got a podcast now, so you should check out his podcast as well as the podcast he does for us every so often and giving us that expertise around March Madness. So, yeah, uh, I appreciate that, Kyle. Thank you. And I appreciate you subbing in for the Razor's Red Zone a few Fridays ago. We did a fine job speaking of the NBA because I just don't have that background and knowledge as you do. And uh, like you mentioned, yeah, follow me at Rosenthal Razor on Twitter. That's backwards at Rosenthal Razor at Twitter, uh, Beer Life Sports on Twitter, and visit our website, beerlife.com. Also, the link to that's in the description to this episode. So if you want to just skip the typing in his name, I gave you a nice little link to it, people listening. It's it's sitting in the description to this episode. <laughs> Always appreciate that plug. Thank you so much, Kyle. And uh, there's still a lot to talk about uh, as we approach the conference championships in March Madness. I can't wait to do it with you. Uh, we will. I'll see you in champ week. All right, man. Thank you. Can you think of anything better than peace of mind? I'm sure I could come up with a couple, but the point still stands. NordVPN is here to give you peace of mind while you are online. With all the threats that you face today on the internet, it's more important than ever to be sure you have the best VPN that you can get. You can get NordVPN on all of your computers and devices. With NordVPN's unlimited bandwidth, you never have to worry about a slow connection either. Plans start as low as $4 per month. And if you sign up today with the exclusive promo code BLEAVE, B-L-E-A-V, you can get 70% off your NordVPN plan and one additional month free. NordVPN is risk-free for 30 days. You will get your money back no matter what. To make it a little easier, use the link in the description to this episode to go to nordvpn.com slash believe. What is up, everybody? We have another episode of our Take It Easy podcast, Oral Histories, coming at you here today. And this is our first one ever broadcast on YouTube. If you want to hear us talk about the fall of Florida State football, the oral history of the Detroit Lions, the San Diego Chargers, now obviously the Los Angeles Chargers, and how that all fell apart. If you want to hear any of these oral histories, you can check them out on the Take It Easy podcast. But today, we've got an oral history of Texas Tech football. And I wanted to encapsulate Texas Tech athletics as a whole, but here's the quick one-minute synopsis of Texas Tech basketball. Texas Tech basketball was terrible until 2000. They decided to hire Bobby Knight after Bobby Knight got fired at Indiana for choking a player. It was a big national controversy. They were the team that said, we'll sell our soul to Bobby Knight. And when Bobby Knight retires after making one sweet 16 in eight years, we're just going to hire his son. We're going to be terrible for three years and fire his son, but we're just going to hire his son. Anyways, so then they're terrible for a few years and then they get Chris Beard and all of a sudden they finish second in the national championship. They, they go to overtime in the national championship game like just ridiculous they're terrible forever and then all of a sudden they make the national championship game and go to overtime against virginia in the national championship game really weird but anyways that's texas tech basketball what i wanted to talk about today is texas tech football because texas tech football has had one of the most incredible histories in college sports for a team that 
has no business being even Division One. Lubbock, Texas is what I've heard multiple people refer to as hell on earth. It gets really, really hot in Lubbock, Texas. There is virtually nothing that exists in Lubbock, Texas. All the jokes that people make about Cleveland, people in the college football ranks and over in Texas, they make those jokes about Lubbock, Texas and the University of Texas Tech. It's such a strange program. And yet they've had the most incredible run of football across the last 25 years from bringing the air raid system to the sport, climbing to number one in the heart of the great college football revolution that changed the entire Big 12 conference to then being the team that had Baker Mayfield and Patrick Mahomes and Cliff Kingsbury, who's now obviously in the NFL and still couldn't win more than six games to the team that they have now that has an absolutely incredible story of how last season ended for that program. And all of it keeps them mediocre, and all of it means they're just a piss-poor average college football team, and yet they have such an amazing story that includes even a senator from Alabama. We'll get to all of that in a second. But let's start off with part one, the backstory of Texas Tech football. Texas Tech football ends up joining the Southwestern Conference in 1960. And the reason they're able to make the Southwestern Conference is because during World War II and the immediate aftermath with the Korean War with a coach named DeWitt Weaver, which is an incredible name for a football coach. I'd like to put that out there first and foremost. At the helm of DeWitt Weaver, Texas Tech legend, Texas Tech won seven border conference championships and had one top 25 season that ultimately gained them entrance into the Southwestern Conference. And for 35 years, the Southwest Conference was essentially viewed as a conference that is Arkansas and not a whole lot else. You know, it's it's Arkansas, it's Nebraska, but there's not really a whole lot left there. And then Nebraska ends up forming the Big Eight afterwards. And the, the conference is a lot of Texas teams that aren't really as good as each other. Obviously, you've got the University of Texas having a short period of success. And Texas kind of built their namesake on that. You have Texas, you have Arkansas, and you have not a whole lot else in that conference. And Texas Tech is one of these teams that just kind of gets beat up all the time in a conference that only has nine teams and really doesn't put that much together in terms of competitive fire, shall we say. So the Southwestern Conference ends up having Baylor and the University of Houston in the 80s dominating, and they have SMU who dominates in the 80s. And this massive boom of college football leaves Texas Tech in the background of the conference during the 1980s boom of the Southwestern Conference. And by the way, when I when I say the Southwestern Conference doesn't have much other than Arkansas and Texas, this is in the 1960s and the 1970s when college football is starting to have this this little bit of a peak. And so as they get into the 1980s and you see SMU emerge as a powerhouse before they get the death penalty and you see Houston and then you see the University of Houston, who ends up making a, a 1988 run with uh, a Heisman Trophy winner, Andre Ware. The, the Texas Tech program starts to fall apart a good bit. And Texas Tech, during the 1980s, just for reference, they go 
eighth place, ninth place, tied for sixth in 1982, 83, fifth place, eighth place, eighth place, a rare seven and five season where they get a fourth place, fourth place, fourth place, fourth place in the 1980s, 1990, fifth place before a slight little pickup at the end of the 1990s as SMU goes on death penalty and as the University of Houston basically gets told we're not going to allow you to be good at football anymore. Texas Tech goes six and five, five and six, six and six, which is good enough to finish second place in a Southwestern conference that's falling apart. Arkansas leaves in 1993 to join the SEC. The, The Southwestern conference is totally falling apart. And so they then end up joining the newly formed Big 12 conference with Baylor and with TCU and with a whole, or sorry, TCU goes to the Mountain West. So TCU isn't in this group. But the point being, they formed the Big 12 conference with a bunch of leftovers who weren't wanted by any other conference as Arkansas leaves to join a better conference. All the holdovers end up going together in the Big 12. And so this new Big 12 conference gets formed in 1996. They have a coach named Spike Dykes, which is an incredible name for a football coach who leads them to some relative stability. They play in the John Hancock Bowl. They make an Alamo Bowl for finishing second place in the Big 12 South at seven and five. They go six and five in 1997. They're just kind of piss poor mediocre, which is kind of what Texas Tech football always is, is. They can beat some of the teams that aren't as well run as them, but Texas Tech also loses to Texas every year, loses to Arkansas every year, loses to Texas A&M every year. It's just a really, really mediocre team. And then they hire in 2000, Mike Leach. And when Mike Leach gets hired, the whole game starts to change in college football because Mike Leach is the is the offensive coordinator of the pioneer behind the air raid offense. The air raid offense is the greatest offensive revolution of the last 40 years. It begins with Hal Mummy and Mike Leach at Little Iowa Wesleyan College. It's an adaptation of the air of the system designed by BYU and Lavelle Edwards and Portland State in the run and shoot offense. It's an evolution of a high-powered offense where you throw the ball all the time. Offensive linemen stand two yards back off the line of scrimmage to give them extra time for protection. Four verts is created. Mesh is a a route that's created in this offense. It's a whole thing. There's a really great book done on it. I recommend everyone reads it. Anyways, so Hal Mummy is the coach. Mike Leach is the offensive coordinator. They are a tandem working together through Iowa Wesleyan College, Valdosta State in Georgia, where they win a Division II championship, and then they go to the University of Kentucky a program that had one win in two seasons prior to them arriving in 1995. And within three years, they make Tim Couch the number one pick in the NFL draft, and they win seven games in the SEC at Kentucky, which for reference is a really big deal. Kentucky was a basketball school that just decided we're going to be piss poor, terrible at football. They turned that team into a contendable team, Tim Couch, a Heisman Trophy candidate, and the number one pick in the NFL draft. So after that, in 1999, Mike Leach ends up taking the head coaching job at Texas Tech. And Texas Tech is the team that's willing to take a risk on a relatively unknown coach, but someone who's a little wacky, a little out there, and has an offense 
that is completely different than what is being run in college football, except for at the University of Houston and at Kentucky with obviously Hal Mummy. And so Mike Leach and these 10 years at Texas Tech end up being a changing lands, changing of the college football landscape. The Big 12 all starts to adopt the air raid offense after Mike Leach has success at Texas Tech. A lot of his quarterbacks during this time, including Lincoln Riley and Cliff Kingsbury, go on to be head coaches and NFL backup quarterbacks running similar versions of the air raid offense. By 2003, they've won the Houston Bowl, which I didn't know was a thing, but they're eight wins, nine wins, eight wins pretty consistently every year, which is a big deal. Like it's not to to be trite. That's a big deal at Texas Tech. By 2005, this is when things start to change for Texas Tech as a program, because in 2005 and 2006, they start to get big time recruits coming in as they finish in a holiday bowl in San Diego. They lose the Cotton Bowl in 2006, but they start to bring in big time recruits like wide receiver and future top 10 pick Michael Crabtree and Michael Crabtree ends up being the star receiver of the air raid offense that is predicated on throwing the deep ball and Michael Crabtree's specialty connecting on the deep ball. And so with big arm quarterbacks, Texas tech gets to 2008 and 2008 is the season where all of this blows up for Texas Tech. Texas Tech's best team and with Mike Leach ends up having a year where they start the season victory against SMU, victory against UMass. They beat Kansas State. They get to number seven in the country. And they're playing in a conference that, by the way, doesn't have the strongest strength of schedule. And Graham Harrell is his quarterback during this run. By the way, Graham Harrell, by the way, the now quarterbacks coach and offensive coordinator for West Virginia, who used to be backup with Aaron Rodgers. And Aaron Rodgers still considers one of his good friends. Anyways, fun pivot there. Graham Harrell's the quarterback. Michael Crabtree is the wide receiver of this team. They are winning games against, you know, mediocre teams. Nebraska's not very good. Kansas State's not very good, but they're scoring 58 points, 56 against UMass, 37 in a win against Nebraska, 43 against Texas A&M. They're playing Kansas, and I know Kansas is a punchline, but back then, Kansas used to be ranked in the top 15. Kansas, 63 points at Kansas, and then they play number one Texas. This is two years removed from the Texas team that won the national championship with Vince Young and one year away from Colt McCoy winning a national or sorry, making it to a national championship game against Alabama. This is a really, really good Texas team. This is the heart of the Mac Brown era. They're ranked number one in the country. They are the team everyone expects is going to win the big 12 championship and Texas and and Texas tech play at Lubbock with college game day in the building. And Texas has a game where they put up a whole bunch of points. Texas plays well. And now we have the legendary play, which again, you can find the video on the internet with eight seconds left in the game. 
33 to 33 or 33 32 left in the game. Texas Tech calls a deep ball for 30 yards from Graham Harrell to Michael Crabtree. Instead of kicking the long field goal, they go straight to the end zone and they get it at the goal line with one second left. Michael Crabtree beats Texas in the game. Texas tech is supposed to lose for 40 years. Texas tech is seven and five every year. They always lose to Texas. They always lose to Arkansas. They always lose to Texas A&M. They frequently lose to Baylor. Texas tech beats the number one team in the country and they get ranked number two in the country. By the way, you know who is offensive coordinator for those University of Texas Tech teams? Dana Holgerson. Dana Holgerson, a wide receiver who played at Iowa Wesleyan with Mike Leach and Hal Mummy, now the head coach at the University of Houston. Fun fact there. So Texas Tech is now ranked number two in the country. They get to number two in the country, the highest ranking Texas Tech has ever had. Texas Tech, who is a program that hasn't won more than 10 games in 50 years, has a chance to make the national championship. The next week, they play Oklahoma State, and Texas Tech whomps Oklahoma State 56 to 20. Oklahoma State was ranked number eight in the country at the time, destroyed by Texas Tech. Texas Tech is the number two team in the country, and they travel to Oklahoma. It's college game day. It is the game of the weekend in a weekend that also had Ohio State and Michigan. It is the game of the weekend in college football. And Texas Tech wins this. They win the Big 12 South Division title. They play in the Big 12 championship game. And they get absolutely pummeled by Oklahoma. And this is an Oklahoma team that had uh, Sam Bradford and Adrian Peterson. Or sorry, not Adrian Peterson. They had Sam Bradford still playing on this team and Trent Williams, who Trent, uh, Adrian Peterson had just left. But they played for a national championship a couple of years earlier, and they would get close to a national championship this year before they, I think they played in the, as the number three team in the country that year, but the point still stands. Oklahoma destroys Texas tech and Texas tech makes a cotton bowl, which they lose to Ole Miss. And it slowly becomes the decline of the program. They never get to that level again. This was their team and getting destroyed by Oklahoma was their chance of winning a championship because the following year, Mike Leach is the subject of national scandal because Mike Leach, who recruited the son of ESPN's top college football analyst, Mike Leach ends up getting fired at Texas Tech because he is sued by Craig James, who, again, I said the the lead commentator at ESPN at the time, he was essentially the role that Kirk Herbstreet is now, Craig James sues Texas Tech because when his son got a concussion, it is reported that they put him in a supply closet to keep him 
for uh, they locked him in a supply closet to prevent his brain from being exposed to sunlight, which is technically what you're supposed to do. But you also can't lock children in a supply closet. And so this lawsuit ends up getting a huge uh, this becomes a huge national story. And whether or not it's true or not is in, is difficult to figure out. And ultimately, Mike Leach refused to apologize to Craig James or his son for lock for presumably locking them in a closet. And because he had been in bitter contract negotiations with Texas Tech, Texas Tech ends up firing him for <laughs> ends up firing him not for cause so that they can try and recoup his money. And Texas Tech's program totally falls apart after 2010. Like this was one year removed from being the number two team in the country and controversy ends up swallowing not just the Texas Tech program, but also Mike Leach, who's essentially blacklisted from the sport for three years before he turns things around at Washington State and then again at Mississippi State with the air raid offense. Not that Mississippi State's going great for Mike Leach, but it is a nice little transition from turning Washington State relevant again with Gardner Minshew back to Mississippi State in the world of third-tier college football. So who comes in to save Texas Tech after the firing of Mike Leach? That would be none other than disgraced Auburn head football coach Tommy Tuberville. And if you know who Tommy Tuberville is now, Tommy Tuberville And so for those of you who may be unaware of who Tommy Tuberville is, Tommy Tuberville is now the senator for the state of Alabama who said recently that communist China is trying to invade Ukraine. Little bit of a Trump nut job, but he was the coach at Texas Tech for three years. And then Texas Tech hires Cliff Kingsbury, who everyone famously points out finished with a career record at Texas Tech of 21 and 23. I'm sorry, I think it was more wins than that, actually, because he got six years at Texas Tech. But the point still stands. He had a sub 500 record while coaching at Texas Tech while having Patrick Mahomes on his team, who, by the way, was good enough to get drafted in the first round as a four-star recruit, ends up going to Texas Tech as the best Division One offer he had. And Patrick Mahomes was competing at the same time with Baker Mayfield, who ends up still hating Cliff Kingsbury to this day because Cliff Kingsbury ends up basically telling him we're not going to extend you a scholarship offer even after he won Big 12 Player of the Year as a walk-on and he replaced an injured quarterback right before. So anyways, they turn to Patrick Mahomes and Patrick Mahomes has this incredible run as the quarterback of Texas Tech which then doesn't lead to any winning, but there's a whole lot of like 45 to 48 games. It wasn't the fault of Patrick Mahomes. It was the fault of big 12 teams just stopped recruiting defense because they spent all of their recruiting resources investing in air raid offenses. So as the air raid offense sweeps college football and specifically the big 12 post Mike Leach as Oklahoma hires Lincoln Riley and they implement the air raid offense and you see the uh, you see Oklahoma State start to implement uh, implement elements of the air raid offense, and Baylor with Art Bryles brings in the air raid offense. You start to see all of this changing landscape in college football post Mike Leach. Texas Tech 
keeps running the air raid offense. They keep trying to recreate the magic with Cliff Kingsbury. Kingsbury gets fired after six seasons at the helm and Texas Tech. Although they produced two NFL quarterbacks out of that program, Texas Tech and an NFL head coach in Cliff Kingsbury, might I add, Texas Tech ends up hiring Utah State's Matt Wells. And I will never forget how amazing it was when they hired Matt Wells because Matt Wells left Utah State right before their bowl game and brought his entire coaching staff with him, which left assistant defensive line coach to become the interim head coach for Utah State during the bowl game, which Utah State won, by the way. They won the bowl game without Jordan Love, who was their quarterback at the time, and without their entire coaching staff. They still won that bowl game in 2019's New Mexico Bowl. It was one of the most incredible things ever. So anyways, Matt Wells ends up going to Texas Tech. He spent the last three years at Texas Tech, goes four and eight, four and six, turns it around and starts five and three, and then gets fired even though Texas Tech still was technically in play to win the Big 12 championship for a short time. If a bunch of weird stuff happened, Texas Tech ended up making the Liberty Bowl and it wasn't really anything, but they're back to seven and five. And now they're going to hire, I believe it is the assistant coach from Baylor as their new head coach and Texas Tech football is kind of piss poor mediocre again, but the story is still pretty incredible of how The 2000s went into the 2010s with Patrick Mahomes going through two years as the starter at Texas Tech and going five and seven in a season where they ended up having an incredibly successful run at the school, even though even though Texas Tech ultimately ended up finishing with not a whole lot to show for it. They had the one number two season, not a whole lot of bowl games. Texas Tech changed the college football landscape in weird ways with a weird 15-year run and a lot of what we think about in the NFL today with Patrick Mahomes comes from, the and also some of the stuff with the Arizona Cardinals, comes from this weird 20-year run of Texas Tech football. It's a weird place for college football to emerge. And yet because they're in the big 12 and because they were willing to take a chance on Mike Leach and innovate the air raid offense, Texas tech gets to be a team that we think of the way we think of Washington with the, uh, the Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan, Matt LaFleur coaches all together under one system. We kind of think of that the same way that we think of Texas tech and they didn't have a lot of success But a lot of people who came through that program went on to have success in other weird and fun places. So this has been the oral history of the Texas Tech Red Raider football program here on Take It Easy podcast.